This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and editor of the Business of Government magazine. As a nation, we are faced with pervasive cyber threats, malicious actors motivated for a variety of reasons that include espionage, ideological beliefs, and financial gain, have the potential to wreak havoc on our way of life. Faced with such an environment, it becomes critically important for businesses to have secure cyber infrastructure that inspires technological innovation and fosters economic growth. The National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, the NCCOE, at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, addresses some of businesses' most pressing cybersecurity problems with practical standards-based solutions using commercially available technologies. The NCCOE collaborates with experts from industry, government, and academia to build modular, open, end-to-end reference designs that are broadly applicable and repeatable. What are the NCCOE's strategic priorities? How does it accelerate the deployment and use of secure, standard-based technologies? What are some of the cybersecurity challenges facing business today? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Nate Lesser, Deputy Director of the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. Also joining us today is John Lanehart, Cyber Fellow Emeritus with the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Nate, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to do this. John, welcome back. Well, thank you. Well, appreciate it, Michael. Uh, so, Nate, would you elaborate on the history and mission of the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence? Sure. NCCOE, or the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, was created as a part of NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is an organization that has been the premier metrology lab in the United States for the last 115 years. We were created out of the NIST cybersecurity program. There was a recognition that that was being picked up and used in a much broader audience. We found that uh, organizations in critical infrastructure and everyone from uh, large retailers to um, utilities and hospitals were, were taking the NIST cybersecurity work and using it, repackaging it and, uh, and using it for their own mission. Um, because of that, a few years ago, uh, in 20, the end of 2012, uh, NIST established the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence out of the recognition that there's more we could do to make the marketplace more efficient, to help move standards and best practices into greater adoption across the community as a whole, and to help take technologies that are out there and available but aren't being used as widely as they could be that meet those standards and best practices and will help broaden the base of security across really the entire U.S. economy. So uh, it's such an important mission operationally. 
How is the center organized? What's the size of your budget, number of folks, uh, and the core functions that you perform? Right. So as I mentioned, the the NCCOE is a part of NIST. It's a part of the IT laboratory at NIST. So NIST is broken up into different laboratories and as a metrology and standards laboratory, uh, NIST really focuses on core science in a lot of places, and uh, the, the advent and, and advancement of the science of cybersecurity is something that NIST has been a very active participant in. Within the IT laboratory, we now have two divisions. One of them is the computer security division, which has existed for quite some time un- under different names, but going back to the early days of the data encryption standard. And then the recently created and new uh, applied cybersecurity division, which we are a part of. Within that space, we focus on, as I mentioned before, the uh, adoption of standards and best practices and helping industry to really figure out the how, how the industry can go about using, if we think of the the what, the standards and best practices as the what of the cybersecurity community should be doing, we're the how. How do you get there? What's that last mile? At the center, we're structured in an interesting way. So we have a small team of about 12, about a dozen federal staff, which is augmented by a federally funded research and development center. The first dedicated to cybersecurity of the 40 uh, FFRDCs, federally funded research and development centers in the country. It's really the easiest way to think of us as uh, the cybersecurity national lab. Uh, Nate, what are the specific responsibilities and duties that you perform as the deputy director of NCCOE? And, you know, what's under your purview? Well, so so my responsibilities kind of fall into three buckets. Really, it's the engagement with our stakeholder community. And that's trying to understand from the technology-consuming community the challenges that they're facing, whether that's sector verticals like healthcare, financial services, energy companies, retail, hospitality, law enforcement, Part B is collaboration with our technology companies. So I'm really responsible for the continued um, work and uh, maintenance of those relationships. Our partners and contributors add a tremendous amount of value to NCCOE projects, and I I hope I have a chance to kind of highlight some of those things in this discussion. But it's really bringing their technology and their expertise to bear on the challenges that we've identified through our relationships with the stakeholder community. And then the third is, of course, management and oversight of day-to-day operations at the center, including the engineering program there. So what are your top, say, three management challenges that you face in your position? How have you sought to address those challenges? So it's a great question. I I think as any new organization, we have an inherent set of challenges, and, and many of those are also opportunities. Some of those exist just by virtue of us being new and a little bit different. We found a number of good avenues for attempting to achieve that. I I, I wouldn't say we've gotten there yet, but a lot of the support and creativity from senior officials within, within NIST, within our organization, from our lawyers and support staff, a good example would be the Technology Partnership Office, which manages our collaborative research and development agreements. Those are agreements that often take 18 months to get signed at the center, and our first one did, I'll admit, but at the center we've now figured out with the partnership of that office and a lot of creativity from the lawyers how to get those down to a month. Um, so that's a, a much faster churn. Another challenge is ensuring that the center has access to the right pool of talent to address what is admittedly a very broad mission. How do we increase cybersecurity adoption across the entire sector, entire, the entire U.S. economy, all sectors of the U.S. economy? So it's fairly broad. 
And in order to address that mission, we really need high-quality engineering talent at the center all the time to address very, very narrow and specific sometimes uh, technical areas. To do that, we, we kind of tackle it in three parts. So we have this incredible group of highly accomplished and dedicated federal uh, engineering leads. They're experts who manage a portfolio of projects, each one of them, and they have the technical depth to both lead in a room full of engineers and to be able to communicate with stakeholders and collaborators directly. We also have the FFRDC that I mentioned before. That's that federally funded research and development center, which is really a flexible resource that allows us to bring the right skill set to the table at the right time for every individual technical challenge. And it, it allows us to do that without any concerns about organizational conflict of interest. And the last of a way that we try and address the, the, the real talent challenge is around collaboration. It's being a space where the entire community can come together. I would say the third one is one that I like to talk about, and that's participation from the technology vendor community. It's turned out to not be as much of a challenge as I expected. And in truth, when you think about it, we're not going to, we don't endorse the uh, products that we use at the center. We don't endorse the companies that work with us. Our collaborators and, and partners see value in this, and that's why they participate. But I expected when I took this job, most of it to be out pounding the pavement, trying to sell people on the idea of the center. As it turns out, and in retrospect, probably not all that surprisingly, the companies that we work with immediately recognize the value because they are much more savvy at conducting that benefit cost analysis than we are. They look at it and they say, well, the cost of participation, that's very low. And in many cases, it's you know a few hours of our time and it allows us to take people who work on our staff and give them this sort of rotational opportunity to spend time at the center. It allows our thought leadership to get out into the world. And it costs us a seat of our uh, technology, one of the you know licenses to our software or a, uh, a you know one of our products. Um, but the the benefit is being able to collaborate and really drive forward a vision of a more secure cyberspace in various different sectors across various different technical challenges. And so that's that's pretty exciting. I, again, I thought that was going to be a lot of work to convince people. It turns out not so much. Okay, Nate, along with the challenges that you've encountered, you must have had some surprises, some unanticipated uh, activities that have occurred. Could you just uh, discuss, you know, one of the surprises uh, that has been a challenge for you in your current role? Sure. So I, I think I wasn't prepared for the extent to which there's a, a really massive and, and largely unaddressed uh, appetite from the cybersecurity community to build this collaborative home, this this space that is, I was talking about a little bit before, but to, to take it a step further, this space that's really sort of pre-competitive in a lot of ways, right? So we tend to think of technology companies like most others as competing with one another uh, and competing for the same customers and, and oftentimes in the same ways. But the recognition that the bad guys collaborate 
and do a really good job of collaborating is not one that we came up with on our own and said, oh, so then let's build this center and convince people to do it. Everybody had this realization. Everybody recognized the proliferation of commodity tech tools and the fact that they're out there and available, the fact that you can call up and get 24 by 7 customer support for tools for identity theft that you've bought on the dark web. You can do that today, and we need to get better at collaborating in those places where it makes business sense. And lo and behold, there are quite a few of them. So building uh, the country's first and only national lab dedicated to cybersecurity, building a, a physical space that we we now have uh, with the, the 23 labs that we have operating there and uh, the over 80 companies, uh, technology partners and collaborators who are working with us is something that, that, that shouldn't have been achievable, frankly, on our budget. We're a, we're a small uh, entity, and I think it really wouldn't have been were it not for that intense uh, recognition from the, the cybersecurity community as a whole that this was a, this was a gap and something we needed to fill. You know, given your, uh, you know, background and experience in both the private and now in the public sector, uh, how would you compare and contrast some of the management skills you need in either sector? But more importantly, really what I really would like for you to talk about is sort of the leadership traits that are the most effective. Okay. Well, so in I think in the public sector, um, one of the, the challenges is remembering that, that you exist inside uh, and in service of a much greater whole. So when it comes to achieving, I think, your individual mission within uh, the public sector, it's important not to get lost. Uh, it, it can be easy to fall prey to this sort of myopic view of what your mi- mission is and where the approaching, achieving your mission can become orthogonal to that of the, the broader organizational goals. So in our case, I try to evaluate every new initiative that comes across my desk, both on its technical and programmatic merit, which is, of course, the core of what we do, uh, but also on the how it can advance the ITL, the Information Technology Laboratory, the NIST, and the, the Commerce Mission as well. You, you have to have that grit, that dogged sort of determination to main fo- maintain focus on where you want to go. If you're leading a business, if you're leading a company, without that, you're going to get off course pretty easily. Um, but at the same time, you have to be flexible enough to pivot to where your customers are and to constantly uh, adding value for them. What are the NCCOE's strategic priorities? We will ask its deputy director, Nate Lesser, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. This edition of the Business of Government magazine highlights strong leaders with the right talent who are charged with executing the business of government. Join host Michael Keegan as he tells the stories of such leaders as Anne Rung, Admiral Paul Zukunft, Dr. Reggie Brothers, Dr. David Bray, and Laverne Council. Outlines their collective challenges, illustrates their respective successes, shares the lessons they have learned, and ultimately explore how best to help these leaders be effective. Tune in on Mondays at 11 for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. 
Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Nate Lesser, Deputy Director of the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. Also joining us is John Leanhart, Cyber Fellow Emeritus with the IBM Center for the Business of Government. We assume that everyone knows what cyberspace and cybersecurity is, right? So I'd like to take a moment and just provide some context because um, to these specific terms. And uh, so what is cyberspace? Why has it become so critically important to secure? And would you define cybersecurity itself and outline the key cyber threats that we're facing? There's actually a formal definition in presidential directives that defines uh, cyberspace as the interdependent network of information technology infrastructures and includes the internet, telecommunications networks, computer systems, and embedded processors and controllers in critical infrastructure industries. Common usage of the term also refers to the virtual environment of the information and interactions between people. Why does it matter, right? Who cares? And on some level, Heartened to see that over the last couple of years, the the change in tenor from the broader community, the broader business community certainly, has uh, gone from convince us that this thing matters, that we need to secure it, to okay, we get it, now help us understand how. Um, DHS refers to cybersecurity as strengthening the security and resilience of cyberspace. That sounds like a pretty good definition to me. It's only, you know six, eight words. Um, so that makes it easy for me to someone like me to understand. One of the most common sort of paradigms for understanding what cybersecurity is is to look at the triumvirate of confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Mm-hmm. And those three parts, each of which it's sort of an attribute of uh, an asset, so a data set, a system, or a network, and they can each be treated as an independent variable, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. So when you think about the thing you're trying to protect, you can think about it in those three ways. Is the information that's within that thing, have I protected it from anyone who shouldn't have access to it? Um, Have I ensured that it can't be changed by anyone who shouldn't be able to change it? And Can I make sure that it's always there and available for those people who should have access to it? So uh, I I would say similarly, this triumvirate is valuable when you decide how much risk as an organization or as an individual, each of the assets within your environment, the things that you care about, the things you want to protect, how much risk are you willing to accept as an organization or as an individual when protecting those? That's how it helps us to get to the notion of a more secure whole, right? A more secure set of organizations, a more secure economy, um, because we're only accepting risk that we've really uh, thought through and that there's a lot better transparency in that risk calculus. And similar to organizations deciding to invest money and and participating in NCCUE activities, uh, we love the idea of organizations doing a thoughtful cost-benefit analysis when uh, thinking about how much money to spend on securing their devices and systems. So can you give us a sense of the strategic vision for the center and the goals that you're pursuing? Sure. So so fundamentally, the center is about making the marketplace more efficient for cybersecurity technologies that, that use standards and best practices. So what is that? It's putting together uh, examples of how cybersecurity technologies can be reused in the real world to ensure that a specific technical challenge is addressed. So the process that we go through allows us to identify challenges that are broad, that are, that are really affecting an entire sector of the economy or, or cutting across sectors of the economy. It allows us to 
address this question of efficiency in the marketplace by looking at uh, everything from the perspective of a CIO or a CISO. So if you are, let's take the CIO of a major hospital system, and you have a finite budget, you have a fairly significant installed technology base that's very diverse, and you need to secure the entire thing. You also need to think about patient information. You have to think about HIPAA compliance. You have to think about patient safety. All of those are your responsibility all at once, and you need to figure out where you're going to spend your money. At the center, what we do is build out an example of how to address a couple of the specific challenges you're looking at. So one of our first projects focused on the use of mobile devices in patient environments and how doctors and healthcare practitioners, nurses and uh, PAs can use mobile devices but make sure that they're still protecting patient information. What controls need to be implemented on that device? How the device connects to the back-end infrastructure, collects patient records from an electronic healthcare record system. That entire infrastructure needs to be modeled. And then you need to think about where are the security gaps? Where are the vulnerabilities in the system? And what, after doing that risk assessment, What controls can we implement? What can we put in place to help ensure that the practitioners are, in fact, using the security technologies, that they're not finding good ways to get around them? Because people who have a job to do, you know, uh, doctors are not there to be cybersecurity experts. They're good there to provide quality medical care. And if they have a technology that's getting in their way, doctors are amongst the best people in getting around it. <laughs> so what are the, the practical considerations when it comes to implementing uh, new cybersecurity technologies in an environment like that one? That's really sort of the core uh, sweet spot for the center. And once we identify the challenge, we go through a round of public comments. Everything we do is out in the public domain, just like the rest of the NIST cybersecurity and truly the entire NIST program. Um, everything we do is available and uh, goes through a round of public comments of peer review. Yeah, would you discuss for our audience why standards are so important in cybersecurity? So it's a great question, and I, I, I appreciate you asking it that way. A lot of times I get this question, if you apply a standard in cybersecurity, aren't you just giving the attackers a roadmap to, to you know, it's, it's, it's usually a lot more hostile than the way in which that <laughs> question is at. Um, so I think fundamentally uh, the, the, the question is if we, if we could – In an ideal world, we would want to be able to quantify the value we get out of every dollar invested in cybersecurity. Invest a dollar here, and you get $1.50 in return. Well, unfortunately, cybersecurity risk, we don't have actuarial tables that allow us to do that, right? Um, If you have a product that adheres to standards and best practices, if you are implementing standards in your environment, then when the next vulnerability is discovered, and it will be, I mean, we all know that these things are constantly showing up on a daily basis, you're more likely to get a patch, you're more likely to get a fix much sooner than if you have your own thing and only a few people are using it. It doesn't uh, float to the top of the pile when uh, developers are out there uh, trying to address challenges that face a a broad community. Okay. Uh, NIST, you know, continues to produce guidance and risk management, security controls, security engineering, and security workforce. Uh, How does this work 
coincide with what you're doing with the uh, NCCOE. So it's another one of our favorite questions because we, we love to talk about our colleagues, right? So uh, they, they, as I mentioned at the beginning, the NCCOE came out of the NIST cybersecurity program, which has a long and storied history in developing uh, standards and best practices and doing that foundational research. There are just a few of the outstanding standards and guidelines from NIST from our colleagues in the computer security division uh, that, are, that are worth highlighting, pro- the cybersecurity framework for critical infrastructure. And this special publication, 853, which is our big security controls catalog. It's also worth talking a little bit about the new special publication, 800-160, which my colleague Ron Ross put together. And uh, he and I have worked to identify the ways in which we can highlight the principles of that security engineering publication in NCCOE practice guide. So what we do is, after defining the requirements of the challenge, we map each of those individual requirements into the cybersecurity framework functions first, and then it's categories and subcategories. And then we look to a set of the standards that are applicable to that community, starting, of course, with the typical security controls catalogs, so 853, uh, ISO, and uh, IEC 27001 and 2. And then looking beyond that to things like COBIT, uh, HIPAA, uh, if it's a, if it's the electric power sector, looking at NERC SIP, uh, how do the things that were the requirements we're trying to meet map to specific security controls? That's the very first thing that we do as we're defining the challenge. Then we take it a step further and build out an example of how each of those security controls could be implemented. It's just one example. It's not us going out and saying, here's the be-all and end-all. Here's the best way to do it in your environment. We're saying this is the art of the possible. Here's a blueprint. It's one way to achieve the implementation of each of these individual security controls, which once you, you roll them up, you get that greater security layer because you've addressed those requirements that we identified through the risk analysis at the beginning. Uh, how does the NCCOE create its project requirements? You know, where do the uh, projects come from? I mentioned before it needs to be a broad challenge. So if it's something that's applicable just to a specific doctor's office, a specific hospital, that's, that's not a good use of taxpayer dollars, we don't think. There's those organizations, there are quite a few organizations out there they can hire to say, come solve my, my problem, right? There's a, there's a, especially in the D.C. area, there's a wonderful <laughs> yeah. community of consultants and systems integrators. But is it applicable really across a whole sector, multiple sectors, or at least a subsector? Then the next question is, are are there relevant standards and best practices? Are we looking to advance the adoption of standards and best practices? Or if we build something, are we just going to be pushing a sort of proprietary approach? Provided that there are some some relevant standards that we can map to, some best practices that are widely adopted, um, we really kind of move – are able to move past that hurdle. Then the next question is really, are, are there available technologies out there? And in particular, for, for us in this, the real sweet spot at the center is, are there technologies that are out there that aren't being utilized as efficiently or in all the ways that they could be? So could we apply technology X? An interesting one that we've worked on is, could we apply a technology that is really geared toward the telecommunications space 
to the electric power sector and industrial control systems. So it's it's really uh, targeted at um, providing a, a, you know an identity and ma- access management control around certain components of a telecommunication system. But would it be equally applicable inside a SCADA system and inside a SCADA network? Looking at challenges like that allow us to help broadly, again, making the marketplace more efficient. And then the last one is really about, you know, can the NCCOE capabilities, if we bring our capabilities to bear, are we going to make a meaningful difference? What's the impact that we're going to, we're going to have? What are some of the projects currently in your pipeline and why, why these projects? <laughs> so it's a big list. Uh, I, I've, been, I've been thinking about how to, how to best kind of put it in buckets for you. We are currently working on projects across a number of the sector verticals. Mm. So to meet that mandate of operating at the pace of business, the things that we were tackling were, were just required too much in order to get uh, our work out on the street fast enough. So the next time around in healthcare, we focused on a much narrower problem. We said we were going to look at, at medical devices. And actually, we took it a step further and said, actually, we're only going to start with hospital-based wireless infusion pumps. Now, that happens to be the most ubiquitous medical device in the country. Because of that, we can have a broad impact while at the same time trying to get the work out uh, and make the guidance available to industry as fast as possible. Uh, Within the utility sector, we're working on some situational awareness stuff that looks really at uh, the cross between your uh, IT infrastructure. So situational awareness is incredibly valuable there. Um, we're looking at some fun stuff in the law enforcement community that can have both uh, some cybersecurity uh, benefits, certainly, but also potentially some mission uh, benefit there that would allow officers to um, be able to move in and out of vehicles more quickly and authenticate uh, more easily to the systems that they need to, to use. Because it turns out that uh, that law enforcement vehicles, that the cruisers that police officers use are their mobile office. So just as some some examples, we're also looking at a whole bunch of, tech, of technology horizontal problems. We're doing some work in data integrity, which is a really underserved area. Um, we're doing some work in uh, DNS-based secure email, which is uh, one of, I think, the only core internet projects that we've tackled to date. So I hope there'll be more of those, but email is still the most ubiquitous form of communication, and uh, it's completely insecure. You you mentioned collaborators, and and earlier on you did a nice job of explaining your role with industry, but can we dig a little deeper? How does industry get engaged with the work you do? And, and, you know, can international companies also get involved? So uh, in, in reverse order, the answer is absolutely. International companies can get involved. The way in which companies get engaged is after our project statement, which is really this uh, short document that says, here's the thing we think we're going to build, goes out for public comment. And uh, ideally, we get a lot of feedback, a lot of constructive, ideally it's constructive criticism, that tells us, you know, here's where you missed the mark and here's how you can fix it. We put it out again to let everybody know this is the direction we're really headed. Once that's out on the street, and it's usually a 12 to 20-page document, usually it's less than 20, it is accompanied by an open invitation to the technology community to send us a letter of interest and say you want to work on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it. It's really it's that simple. There's an invitation. It's published both on our website where 
I think most people find it and in the Federal Register, mm-hmm. in case you sit around reading the Federal Register. <laughs> and it, it requires that a technology com- a company send us a short, it's like a one-page letter. It summarizes the contribution you want to make and how your technology aligns to the requirements in the project description. And once we've received those letters of interest and we've reached the sort of minimum set of technologies necessary to go build something, mm-hmm. we assemble the build team by sending out collaborative research and development agreements. That's the, it's, it's technically it's a contract, but there's no consideration. There's no money that exchanges hands. It's simply a statement. Here are the things that NIST is going to bring to the table. Here are the things that the collaborator is going to bring to the table. And it falls into two categories that you, you name your PI, your principal investigator, and you name the technology that you're going to bring um, into the center. It's signed by someone at the collaborator company. It's signed by the director of the Information Technology Laboratory at NIST. And that's it. Then we're off to the races. One of the unique things about our CRADA, and this goes back to our lawyers' creativity, is that CRADAs often are used as a mechanism for the definition of ownership of shared inventions in government. So they're usually used as a kind of a tech transfer mechanism, a way for the government to collaborate with the private sector and then say, like, we both own this. At the center, we are actively discouraging the creation of new intellectual property. So it's an interesting mechanism. One of the things that we like to say is that we're working on solving today's problems with today's technology. And that's because across the cybersecurity community, there are fantastic experts working in the field of trying to address the problem we're going to face in three to five years. Quite frequently, we hear, that's great, but I have a problem now. (laughs) And in order to solve my problem now, I need something other than what you're working on that's going to go through interesting research and development. You're going to have some, you know, fantastic, brilliant conclusions. Then it'll go out and get commercialized. Maybe you'll license it. Then it'll be a product. And by the time I get it, it, maybe it'll solve my problem then, but I won't be in business anymore. And in order to do that, we had to think about CRADAs, Collaborative Research and Development Agreements, a little bit differently. So what, is, what role do other federal agencies play? I have a tendency to break things into buckets, if you haven't noticed. So they play three important roles. <laughs> other federal agencies participate uh, at the center in, in, in these three ways. They provide us with uh, detailees. So we, we certainly uh, work actively with other agencies to ensure that the center can be a place where the collaborative nature is not just a benefit to NIST and, and our mission and our stakeholders, but that anyone who's looking to advance in their career, who has a certain skill set, who can uh, help us to drive that mission forward uh, has the opportunity to work in that space. We, we tend to think of ourselves as the really, really big tent. Other federal agencies are also, in many cases, stakeholders for us. So we're, we're addressing a number of challenges that, if they're not specific to government, certainly government is one of the primary implementers of the outcome of, of what we're working on. And some of our early work focused on trusted geolocation in the cloud, how you can use hardware roots of trust in a cloud service provider uh, or a large data center to tie a client's workload down to a specific location and a specific set of security features. That's not uniquely a government uh, application or use, but uh, certainly the government has some unique reasons to uh, want to be able to locate uh, within a specific geography the, the workload that the government's putting up. 
So there's a stakeholder, there's participation in the NCCOE activities on, by taking details in. But then there's the third one, which is the NCCOE is really set up by virtue of our structure to allow us to do work on behalf of other federal agencies as well. So in a lot of cases, agencies are sponsoring work at the center that we, given our limited budget or given uh, the constraints of any number of things, wouldn't uh, that wouldn't come to the to the surface. So uh, work that is certainly within our core mission and is aligns well to uh, the requirements that that we've put in place about it being open and collaborative and and uh, being out in the public domain. A lot of agencies see that as a national capability that they don't want to go build their own, so they'll fund some of the research and work that we're doing. Uh, that includes some work that we're doing with DHS on building out examples of the continuous diagnostics and mitigation work, um, some of the work with, um, with GSA on supply chain security. Um, we're doing some work now with the Coast Guard, so there's, there's quite a bit happening. What are some of the key cyber challenges facing business today? We will ask Nate Lesser. Deputy Director of the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Nate Lesser, Deputy Director of the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. Also joining us is John Leinhart, Cyber Fellow Emeritus with the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Would you elaborate on your efforts to address the challenge around mobile device security? What can you tell us about the proposed mobile device security solution you folks are working on? So... Mobile device security is a great example of where the the, the promise of new technical capabilities, economic benefits, uh, or convenience really are driving adoption and innovation faster than security can keep up. Um, so we look out and 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 say, okay, w- how can we help to address the situation uh, where security is not going to become either an afterthought. Right, because then it doesn't work particularly well, uh, or become something that is a hindrance to uh, people who are are using these devices because they provide convenience, because they have a different mission, because they're trying to uh, achieve a certain outcome. What can we do to help ensure that security is an enabler and not getting in the way of the business uh, requirements? Um, so we looked and said, look, there are great technologies out there uh, to help address this challenge. So. 
organizational users are, are wary of those technologies, but there are uh, enterprise mobility management solutions. They used to be called MDMs, but now they call EMMs. Um, that if if a company chooses to implement an enterprise mobility management solution, um, and if my company chooses to implement that, and I want to bring my phone to work, what's going to happen? Uh, is it going to break stuff on my phone? Will they be able to read my personal email? Uh, what happens if I lose my phone? Does that mean the company is going to be able to uh, erase its stuff from my phone? What happens if I leave it at home? Uh, are they going to know where I am? All these phones are, have, have uh, geolocation built in. Um, so what we built at the center actually was a program uh, looking at mobility that addresses a number of these areas. So I got a chance to talk a little bit about um, the work that we did in protecting patient information on mobile devices okay. earlier. So that was one component of it. We also released guidance on um, – it's out in draft now – on cloud-based mobility management solutions, uh, primarily targeted at small businesses. We've got a couple of other projects that we're working on now, uh, one on uh, looking at a more enterprise view. What am I going to do if I'm going to host it on site and how does that, uh, how does that work? And we're working with the, the market leaders now in mobility management uh, on that challenge. And then we've got another one uh, that should be coming out shortly uh, in the next month or so. Uh, it's a new project requirement looking at mobile application single sign-on. Um, and there's a lot of interest within the, uh, within the public safety community on that. Okay, Nate, I was out at the NCCOE. I got to see the, uh, the start of your medical infusion uh, pumps uh, research. Can you provide a little bit more information to the listeners about that and what you're doing in the area of that kind of security? Uh, yes, yeah, fantastic work. We're really excited about um, today. the The project is is humming along. I just got an email as I was walking in here about the next two collaborators who have signed up uh, to participate in that activity. And I think we're we're finally at the the core uh, mass that we need in order to get the the build team finalized. Um, so that's really exciting. I expect. Uh, shortly uh, in the in the fall uh, or early winter to be able to have that guide out on the street. Uh, that'll be a draft that'll be available for public comment, um, hopefully by the end of October. And that guidance is is really about what controls do you need to put in place around medical devices, particularly wireless infusion pumps, in order to make them more secure in your organization. Today, we know that there are vulnerabilities on many of these devices, some of which use commodity operating systems, mm-hmm. um, which have open ports that you can log into remotely. Uh, many of them are uh, have, have systems that can't be patched or can't be patched right. easily. Uh, and since a lot of them run like a Linux-based or, or Windows-based uh, operating system, without being able to patch those systems, there are known vulnerabilities that are out there and resident on those systems for a very long time. At the same time, new devices are coming out that have a lot of those security controls baked in. So we want to make sure we recognize the sort of kudos to the technology community for getting a little bit, uh, for, for getting ahead of this a little bit. The only problem is that if you run a hospital, you're not going to throw away all your wireless infusion pumps that are working just because there's a new one out there that does a better job of, of protecting um, some of the vulnerabilities you already know about. And even more importantly, Engineering in the protections is a fantastic activity. We all know that there are going to be vulnerabilities detected even after those security components are engineered in. And so 
how do we think about the controls that you can put around the uh, infusion pump, whether it's within your uh, a segregated network within your hospital system, uh, whether it's uh, perimeter controls that you put. I know that's kind of a dirty word these days, but you still have to think about the, the basic uh, blocking and tackling even when you're thinking about implementing um, internal security controls, some of the more advanced analytics. Um, but what do we what what does a hospital need in order to make sure that it can continue to protect its patients that it continue to protect their information and how can it ensure that wireless infusion pumps are neither attacked directly or used as a pivot point to attack the rest of the infrastructure and those are a lot of the risks that we're looking at as we uh, develop the guidance here and another sector I want to talk about, we did medicine, but energy utilities uh, rely on network, uh, networked operational technology, right? So to control the generation, transmission, and distribution of power. What, do you, what is being done to secure the networked infrastructure for the energy sector? How are we working on that? Yeah, so it's another great question. People often ask me what keeps me up at night, and that's always that's always the one. Um, it's uh, well, there are a lot these days, but that's uh, I have small kids too, so I, but um, I think the uh, the the thing that that uh, the utility community has started to recognize, which is which is really wonderful, is that um, the uh, security is a real concern, even for. Uh, systems that are traditionally air-gapped and completely segregated. So um, the the community, the the electric power companies have looked out and said, o- over time, these things aren't plugged into an IP network, so we don't have to worry about it. That 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 the recognition that that's in most cases not entirely true, um, and the recognition that the the economics of their situation is driving. Um, electric power companies to squeeze every last penny out of every kilowatt hour means that there are fewer truck rolls, means that they want to send line crews out as infrequently as possible, means that they they want to reduce the manual maintenance required for components in an electric power substation. In order to do that, they have to have remote management in place. And remote management means connecting these devices somehow, uh, connecting them. And once they're connected, there's a real question of, well, what are they connected to and what are those things connected to, right? It's always this uh, cascading effect problem. Um, thinking about a more holistic approach to securing electric power utilities is something that we've seen a real appetite for, from the utility side and doing. I mean, it's, we've got some great interest from uh, one of our, our uh, pilot partners, the New York Power Authority has, uh, since we released our first practice guide on identity and access management, um, they've come to the center and made a public announcement that they were going to fully implement that guidance. And so that's that's pretty exciting. There's a real appetite within the industry. We've also seen the cybersecurity community start to recognize an important shift, which is that the uh, technology refresh cycle within a traditional enterprise is something on the order of 24 months. It's, it's around there. Uh, the technology refresh cycle for an electric power company is something on the order of 50 years. That di- difference, that that delta is enormous in terms of what uh, electric power companies are willing to do to replace working infrastructure. So while while that's true, you still have these economic drivers on the other side that are causing them to start to connect everything. So where are we? Where does we sort of meet in the middle in terms of getting what's, in a lot of cases, commodity cybersecurity tools and products 
but get those products used and implemented in an environment that's very resistant to change traditionally. So the good news is that we've seen the confluence of some movement on the side of the cybersecurity co technology companies and some uh, movement and recognition on the side of utilities. Now everybody's kind of coming together and meeting in the middle, and, and that's created a, a fantastic environment for us to put out some guidance that shows people how to do it, how to build situational awareness, how to build identity and access management, the bridges, those silos within their environment. Hey, Nate, what trends are driving innovation in the cybersecurity landscape? Open-ended. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think, you know, certainly I can only say from my perspective, and I, I, I will uh, always own my somewhat myopic view of the world, but um, I mentioned earlier, you know, bad guys are working really well together. Um, it's it, there's a there's a natural sort of confluence uh, in market efficiency within the attacker space uh, that has been hindered, I think, by uh, a lack of willingness to communicate from government to government, from government to private sector, from private sector to government, uh, from private sector to private sector. The entities within this space often are not sharing to the extent that they can and should. We've seen some legislation recently that hopefully will help with that, um, but. Collaboration is a step further than sharing, right? So how do we get together and sit down and solve a problem and develop those meaningful connections? You, if you watch two engineers working on a problem, mm -hmm. everybody forgets where they, where they came from, what company they work for. They're just trying to solve the problem in front of them. Um, it's a fantastic thing to witness. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of. I think that is, if you're looking at what's driving innovation uh, today, I would say collaboration is one of the most significant drivers. Um, the second one is greater diversity. So we're, we're, there's a huge push for greater diversity in the workforce, cultural, racial, ethnic, gender, but also uh, diversity from, from types of organizations, right? So the, the cybersecurity discussion was always a discussion that was not only only for certain types of organizations or certain parts of your organization. It was kind of relegated to the back room, the IT guy who nobody really wanted to talk to. Um, now, now it's, I mean, it's already in boardrooms. It's been in boardrooms for a couple of years. But it's, it's also different sectors of the economy. You're seeing the cybersecurity conversation take place within mom-and-pop retailers, uh, restaurants, manufacturers. That's where people are talking about it today. And admittedly, it's sometimes, oh, my God, what do I do? And I think the, the, the other thing that's going to help truly drive cybersecurity forward is for the cybersecurity community to tone down the doom and gloom side of this. So we've had an opportunity here to talk a little bit about some of the really scary things that we see out there, but also what we're doing to address it. Uh, every time as a community, you get someone out there saying, well, there are two types of companies. Those have been hacked and those who don't yet know they've been hacked. You see the CEOs, the board members, the, the business people in the room, their eyes glaze over and they shut down. Why? Well, it's not because they, they don't care. You're not scaring them. What they think is, oh, great, I don't have to spend any money on this because there's no way to solve the problem. <laughs> so we can, we can do a much better job of bringing the business along with us. Uh, and I think there's some, some real room uh, for movement there. So where are the greatest unmet needs in technical cybersecurity innovation? So I, I think fundamentally we're still playing catch-up, right? So uh, the, the mean time from exploit to detection is still very, very long. 
Um, in many cases, it's weeks, months, or even years. And and that is uh, not a trend that, that we like to see. That uh, means that separate from our ability to detect, we're, our, our ability to do something about it is completely um, uh, neutered because we can't if we don't know about it until weeks or months later, then there's nothing we can do. They've, all of our information has been exploited. Any um, anything we don't want changed has already been changed. I mean, we're we're, we're kind of done for. Um, so how do we how do we shrink that time? We need technologies that are really going to identify intrusions faster, but I would say even more importantly. Um, dramatically reduce the high false positive detection rate that we're seeing from a lot of tools, um, a lot of technologies that we have today. And, and there are certainly, there are people who are spending uh, a lot of time and energy on this already. There are companies out there that are, are really tackling this problem today. But um, I think detection fatigue is still an enormous part of the, the challenge that we face. We need technologies to work better together. So too much of the um, history of cybersecurity technologies has been, well, I have something that does it better, cheaper, faster, and you, it, the only problem is you have to throw away anything you bought already. So if you're gonna you you move to what I have and you move you know lock, stock, and barrel, and then you've you not only have you uh, all your sunk costs are, th- are being thrown away, but you also have to if you, if you want to get the next thing, you have to buy it from me, you have to wait till I put it out, or you have to throw away what I've just made you spend in order to go to the next uh, the next greatest thing. So um, we're seeing trends that the community is moving in this direction. Certainly standards are, are something that will help in that space. But it's also people are starting to listen to their buyers and say, oh, okay, you know what? We can't exist in a vacuum. We have to make the business case for this. Um, so we're going to make our technology. We have a niche, and that's the thing we're good at. We're not going to try and do everything. Cybersecurity needs to be easier for everyone. I mean, I think that's this is not a technology innovation necessarily, although it could be. The user experience, the user interface, the um, business process cannot be sacrificed to on the altar of you know better security controls. Every time it is, all the users do is find a good way around it, right? So we see that when we make them. What's the the password? Okay, so it's I have to. Uh, it's twenty two characters long. It has letters, numbers, symbols, uppercase, lowercase, and you have to change it every fifteen days. What does everybody do? They write it on a little post it and stick it on the side of their monitor. And now we've not only decreased the overall security of our system, we've pissed off all of our users. Um, so we've managed to achieve both those things at the same time. As a community, we can we can do a lot better than that. Um, there are there are other other gaps and areas. I, I would say the the last thing though is that just from a it's not a technical one, but thinking from a community perspective, the business has gotten very good at moving the cybersecurity discussion into the highest echelons uh, across every organization, across every business. The cybersecurity community has not gotten as good as quickly at understanding how to translate cybersecurity risk into business risk. And that's something that that there are great consultants out there who will do it for you, but I think it needs to be an inherent skill for anyone who works in this in this world, in this community. So what emerging technologies hold the m- most promise for improving the work that you do? 
I, I, so I don't know. I, I mean, I would say I, this is the, that's the, that kind of question is the reason that I work with people who are smarter than I am. Um, but I, I, I've seen five areas that I think uh, they're worth watching, certainly, in the months and years to come. Um, we talk a lot about analytics. I think uh, the promise of the sort of world of analytics is, is yet to be realized. Um, but I, I, there's, there's, it's certainly an area worth watching, and I would be very surprised if we don't see great things from the, the brilliant data analysts out there. Um, orchestration is an interesting area. It's still somewhat nascent, though there are a couple of companies out there that are, are doing it today in, in various different forms, and that's the how do I not just automate the, the um, detection and response, but how do I automate the entirety of incident response? How do I how do I bring together all of the piece parts from those different disparate technologies and then have one sort of quarterback that is automated that takes all the actions that an analyst might take? Um, I think in the area of uh, encryption, we, we, we look a little bit at uh, some questions around uh, data in use uh, and the the potential for uh, homomorphic encryption still hasn't another one of those hasn't yet been realized but could have great value um, quantum resi- resilient cryptography uh, is certainly an area that we're going to need as we have greater uh, use and distribution of quantum computing um, and then the last one is kind of near and dear to my heart because what I, I did in graduate school is, is the application of machine learning um, probably unattended uh, learning in to uh, cybersecurity, it's still a field that hasn't yet been uh, widely adopted, and and there's a lot of work that could be done there. Well, great. Um, I want to get one more uh, question, and it's uh, it's advice question, and it's uh, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? So, especially when talking to. I guess I can say young people now. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing to think that I've reached that stage in my life. Um, I, I, I often think of public service as a wonderful opportunity. It's a wonderful opportunity for your career. Um, but I, I caution people to try and have as dynamic and interesting a career as they can. To think really about what are uh, to take some ownership over your career and what and 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 really drive toward the things that you want to the skills you want to have and the things that you want to achieve. Um, it's the very today it's very non-traditional for anyone to have sit and work at an agency or a company for 40 years it just doesn't seem to happen anymore um, and so I really think that there are some fantastic opportunities that that affords uh, the fact that you uh, can move from the private sector to the public sector and back again. Um, and the fact that within government, and this is something that I always say, is it, 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 bureaucracy aside, it, you can achieve a tremendous amount if you don't worry about who gets the credit for it. And that's something that uh, when considering a career in public service, I often tell people this is uh, a place where you can do truly great things uh, just don't get too bogged down in making sure that you're the one who's getting credit for it. Nate, I want to thank you for your time today. But more importantly, John and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Michael, thank you. John, thank you for having me. It's fantastic. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Nate Lesser, Deputy Director of the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. My co-host today has been John Lanehart. Cyber Fellow Emeritus at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. 
Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. This edition of the Business of Government magazine highlights strong leaders with the right talent who are charged with executing the business of government. Join host Michael Keegan as he tells the stories of such leaders as Anne Rung, Admiral Paul Zukunft, Dr. Reggie Brothers, Dr. David Bray, and Laverne Council. Outlines their collective challenges, illustrates their respective successes, shares the lessons they have learned, and ultimately explore how best to help these leaders be effective. Tune in on Mondays at 11 for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM.